Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Jennifer Biddinger. She is the Director of Drug Abuse Outreach Initiatives for Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be doing this. Okay. So your role with the Attorney General's office is to help Ohioans fight drugs in their communities. So tell us what all that entails. It's a simple and a complex answer. So I'll try to be as simple as possible in answering it. So um, as part of Attorney General Mike DeWine's heroin unit, there's what we call the outreach team. And our team goes into communities, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit better, for a variety of reasons. Either we're contacted saying, please come help us. We see that there's some bad, really bad situation there, um, either a, a, a dramatic increase in overdoses or they're ranked number one in the state or something like that. We may have had an investigation and then we go work with law enforcement. So we're going to enter a community for a variety of, of reasons. Okay. So you target the community for Correct. a specific purpose. Yes. Or they call us. Um, and more and more, that's true because they're hearing about the work we do. Okay. More and more people saying, please come help our county. Okay. Um, and really the first step is to kind of organize key people in that community. And it varies by community. So you may have a community where there's a certain business person who's very actively engaged and they need to be part of that initial conversation. But there's always kind of the standard people. So you're looking for leaders, really, yes, in the community. That's correct. That's probably more than title. That's probably yes, what you look for first. Correct. We do title because you know sure, they're important folks in the community. But there's you're exactly right, leaders. And the leader could be a parent who lost a child. And, and so we ask the community to define that for us because we certainly don't necessarily sure. know who that might be. Uh, we hold a meeting with them. We often call it a strategic man, uh, planning meeting. And from there, we make some decisions about how to best move forward and assist that community, whether it be holding a community meeting with a variety of people, whether it be a town hall, whether we decide we're just going to go create some initiatives and go after those specifically. Okay. So let's talk about this strategic planning meeting mm -hmm. and what becomes what as an outgrowth of that, mm -hmm. some of the components that yes. come from that. 
Well, I, I'll give you a couple examples. I don't not like to name specific areas, um, but I think it helps to give a real example when describing yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there was a, a community, a fairly uh, well-to-do community, and unfortunately, often in those communities, um, we struggle with some awareness. You know, there's still kind of that not my neighborhood. Well, it wouldn't happen to my family. Correct. Sure. Right. Um, and at the same time, say I was working on that one, I was working on another group, uh, strategic planning, in a neighborhood where is the highest rate of overdose in that county. So you can imagine how very different those approaches need to be. Sure. So in the well-to-do community, it was very clear that we had had two struggles. One was getting people in the room, um, because often what happens is there's two things. People say, it's not in my family, I don't need to go, or it is in my family, and I'd be ashamed if I showed up. Yeah. So, so the, it's a challenge often to get people in the room, not as much as it used to be. Um, so where there's kind of a lack of awareness, you have a very different challenge with promotion and, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, even though the, the meeting might be about awareness, we also know we have to connect people to resources. It's critical now. The other meeting where they certainly know that they have a problem, the main reason that they're going to attend is to get help. So kind of the town hall speaky part of it is not really the significant part. We want to get them there so that we can have partners in the room who will connect them so they can get help. So the strategic planning meetings are so that you know, the team understands how to best serve them. And then we work towards that. We don't ever walk into any community with a plan. We need to listen to them about their needs and then develop the plan. That's how it works. It, it is unique every single place we go. Okay. And oftentimes, though, you'll have service providers for treatment yes. as a part of those meetings. Yes. So that they can actively engage with the community. Yeah, on, right on the spot. Yeah. Yes, because okay. sometimes um, the, the last one of these that I worked on, you know, they provided transportation because people forget that so, many of these folks, they can't get there. So we work on that too. Something is that people might not think about. You know, how are people going to get to the meeting? And then how are we going to arrange transportation? So... But if they don't get there, you know, you're not doing any good. Mm -hmm. um, the last, the one where we had a very organized transportation approach, I think we had 300 people come. Um, I mean, that was pretty astonishing. Pretty great huh. meeting in a small community, 300 people. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Can you can you share how big the community was or what the community um, was? It's a county of about 12,000. Okay. Oh. So a smaller county. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that since you travel all over the, the, uh, the state and mm -hmm. you're involved with many different communities, you have a unique opportunity to see what's working out there. Yes. Share with us some of those programs that are working there, Jennifer. Oh, gosh. Um, there's, there's quite a few. And we have, in fact, developed what we call a solutions document because um, it is so important. There are many programs, and I'll, I'll pick some out. Mm -hmm. So many programs working, but what we continue to see is that people operate in silos. Or, and if I'm in, say, you know, Scioto County, I'm, I'm not likely to know of a program that's effective in Cuyahoga County. 
So, but we we know as a state because we see it. So we put together, um, and certainly you can provide it on your site for listeners, a document we call solutions document. That's exactly. And that's all it is. It's if you're in law enforcement, here's some things you can do. If you're um, trying to reach your schools, here's some things you can do. Um, when when we when you first uh, when I was first chatting with you, as an example, you talked about uh, Wayne Campbell mm-hmm. and Tyler's Light. Yep. Um, and so, in in certain schools, they may be interested in bringing him in for a school assembly. Um, you know, they have to, of course, decide and review it for themselves. But we can give them those approaches. In I think that the most two big effective areas, and they'll be real specific, are in the faith community and in law enforcement. So, in the faith community, um, Attorney General Mike DeWine has been very, very active. And we've, in fact, held seven faith conferences, three um, in West Virginia, because certainly people can cross state lines. We held a fa- our first faith-based conference a couple of years ago, and um, it became very clear to us that this was a community that wanted to be engaged, but just weren't wasn't sure how to be engaged. And so one of the things we say to them, and to many others, is it's not that complex stay in your lane. So if you're a faith-based organization and you do things like provide food, why not provide it to this population? We're not asking you to step out and spend money you don't have. Do what you do. Provide outreach to families. So some specific examples there, um, our office worked with um, a county uh, with a really active opiate task force. On that uh, task force is uh, a pastor who's very engaged in this effort. And and two things he did rather quickly. He realized that in his county there was 300 churches. So think about that in terms of a support structure. It's massive, right? Yeah. Um, And he believed that their niche was, which it is anyway, outreach to families. So in this collaboration, he was gifted uh, what used to be a nursing home which he'll turn into a recovery home. In addition to that, his new project is whenever there's an overdose, they, someone from the church will visit the family. So that is in the church's mission. It is not stepping out of their lane. It's just learning this, learning how to talk to them. So uh, Attorney General's office uh, started what we call Champions Network. So we provide training to people in faith-based groups so that they understand how to help. And I believe we have over 100 champions now across the state who are engaging with faith-based groups to put this sort of work together. Wow. So how would one get involved in the Champions Network? Um, They can certainly, the best way to reach on any of the questions related to what the outreach team does, we have an email address. It is heroin heroin unit at Ohio Attorney General dot gov. We're not easy to reach on the phone, so that's really the best method. Heroin unit at Ohio Attorney General dot gov. Correct. Let's move along to law enforcement then. Yeah, no, law enforcement, you know, dramatic change sure. in law enforcement. And that really started out of Lucas County with the DART program. 
And the Attorney General was very, very engaged in, in helping that to happen. And, and the concept in that was that an officer, when there was an overdose, would go to the hospital um, and try to assist. Um, they also would bring with them, and this is where collaboration comes in, because they're not counselors. Right. You know, they can try to be, but that's really not who they are. So they're going to collaborate with their mental health and addiction board and have somebody assist them and go as a counselor. Or that actually came out of like the prosecutor's office. Um, and go, because not everybody out of overdose, the first person they don't necessarily want to see is a police officer. No, um, But they go, and then they work with them to get them to treatment all the way through. Uh, they'll give them their cell phone numbers. And, you know, we've had folks that have been through that uh, who said, when I think I'm re- going to relapse, I'm calling a police officer. Never in my life did I think that would happen. So we also assisted with um, recovery housing, which is so important to these folks. So that program, I believe, has helped over about 1,500 uh, people at this point. Um, so That's that was impressive. Very it's impressive. just absolutely tremendous. Yeah. Um, and then you have, um, you know, we had spoken about quick response team, which is, is kind of similar. Um, again, where they're going and helping law enforcement, those who have overdosed, going to homes and kind of helping the family as well because the family has trauma issues too. It's not just the individual. It's the individual and the people that surround the individual who are drawn into this. Um, and, and trauma, of course, in general, is becoming a massive problem and issue across the state. Um, and, a, and, and, you know, they're carrying naloxone, but they are really thinking differently. Um, they know that they can't arrest their way out of it. Certainly they have to, you know, for the larger dealers. But with this, the disease of addiction, it's so very powerful that you have to get help. You, you're, you're likely not going to beat this by yourself, and you need a support network. So if it happens to be law enforcement, it happens to be law enforcement. Um, and, and, you know, we're all really proud of them because this is, you know, we tell people to stay in their lane. These folk, these guys, they've really stepped out of their lane to they do have, this work. No doubt about it. Yeah. Um, and that didn't come natural. For some of them, yes. there was a real learning curve and yes. in the beginning. Uh, it was rather uncomfortable for them. Yes. So now I want to just move along. I had the pleasure a little bit uh, earlier this week on Monday to interview Sam Quinones. Mm. He's the author of Dreamland. He believes that community members working together will be the biggest difference makers in the opioid epidemic. Yes. What do you think? First of all, I, I, I think Sam's remarkable. And I've known Sam quite a long time. Um, and, and for, I would say for listeners who don't know about Dreamland, you know, Sam uh, spent a lot of time in Ohio doing research and his original intention with the book wasn't what, what it turned out to be. And, you know, for anybody who's really interested in learning about the history of how we got here, uh, its impact, it's a really good book to read that because, and, and also it, it's so much about Ohio. Um, yep. It's a page turner. It, it, it it, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. And Dreamland, the name, um, comes from really what he believes is a big contributor to this epidemic. One of the things that happened is the pool closed. 
So that changed so much of that community because that's where people used to go. And and so Scioto County was hit really hard, not just with the bad economy, but you know they had the most number of pill mills there of anywhere else in the country. Um, so bad there. So, but in Scioto County, what you then eventually had were community members who decided enough. Um, you know, the first woman to speak very publicly about the loss of her son to this is from Scioto County. Um, so many people down there, and now the recovery center down there has served, last time I heard, uh, people from 56 counties in Ohio. So to go from being kind of ground zero to being a place to serve 56 counties is really extraordinary. And that really was really so much the result of just some really strong people deciding to make a difference. And we do see that everywhere. Yeah. Um, that's, and, and we look for them. You know, who, who are the people here? When we talked earlier and said, you look for leaders, mm. we need those people. Yeah. Um, and we find them. And they're not necessarily who you think they might be. Um, they somebody who has some passion for this. And often that, unfortunately, is connected to the death of a loved one. So now let's transition and talk just a little bit about the uh, ideas that work conference topics. Mm -hmm. From earlier this year, there were a number of just great topics that came out of that. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like to uh, see if you uh, might be able to share some of these that I picked out mm -hmm. that I think are little known out there yeah. in, the, uh, in the community. So detox and jails, mm. they've been a, a real problem, a real, real problem. Sure. So what are... What are the ideas that work here? Well, for jails in general, I kind of broaden it a little bit. Um, certainly there's a lot of detox, um, but jail administrators and personnel have really done a good job of better collaboration with like their mental health recovery group so that they're um, able to provide some of these folks perhaps some medication that gives them comfort. There's, you know, something called comfort packs. So, They've gotten better at it. They understand this as an illness and that, you know, it's awful. But but really, um, it drains them in jails. But what, they, what they've what they really changed there is, is not just kind of their approach to help with detox, but the entire process while they have individuals with them. Because jails can be very short-term. And unfortunately, when you go to jail, your benefits, if you or say, for example, on Medicaid, are suspended. So, so you lose uh, treatment. So now it's really up to the jail to figure that out. Um, and many have. But they've done it through collaboration with partners in their community. And that's part of how we help guide them. So I'm, I'm going to give you a really specific example that works. Um, they were just actually featured on a, a call with Medicaid. Um, we worked very closely with Pickaway County. Um, there was, you know, a bunch of indictments in Pickaway County, and it was very clear to them, we have to do something different. Um, you know, their jail holds about 110. That alone was about 70 people. How do you deal with that? You know, you, you can't. Yeah. And it costs the county, people to understand, if you got to ship those inmates somewhere else, it's expensive. 
And you as a taxpayer are picking that cost up. So, so they had to look at a different approach. Um, so in that particular jail, and the jail administrator kind of downplays it, but he said, you know, Jennifer, it was two phone calls to do all I did. And, and, and here's what he did. So the jail administrator himself created a, a survey for the inmates. It was kind of a life survey about what are you going to do when you get out of here? And very specific questions. How are you going to unite with your family? How are you going to find a job? How are you going to get treatment? And, and how that they work that is the person incarcerated would have to fill this out. When they completed it, they would meet with a probation officer and somebody from either Job and Family Services or the Mental Health Board who would review it with them. And if they felt that they had a really good plan and that they were sincere, then they were awarded the great opportunity, and that's kind of how it was positioned to them, of receiving a Vivitrol shot, which was funded by the Mental Health Recovery Board. Um, so what, now you're clean, right, while you're in jail, so you have to be clean for that. So that's kind of step one, and it was, it was a privilege. So when they were awarded the, the Vivitrol shot, yeah. so this obviously wasn't just one shot covering from... For 30 days. Well, normally, they're, yeah, they, normally by the time they've been through the process, they'd get the shot. Mm -hmm. They're going to be released yeah. pretty before the next ones do. So what they would also do um, is work very closely with Job and Family Services, who would get make sure that those inmates were signed up for Medicaid upon release and provide to those inmates information about where to get help, um, where to pick up naloxone, where to go for your next shot, um, where to look for housing. They've also been working on some uh, skills training and certification while they're in there for 30 days. Mm -hmm. and, and the last time I, I met and talked to the jail administrator, his name's Gabe, um, he was so happy. He said, uh, he gave me a little tour of the jail, and he said, this is the... I, the least full my jail has ever been. Wow. Um, and I think his numbers were like, of the 56 he signed up for Medicaid, only four had come back. Um, mm -hmm. The sheriff there said to me, one of the great days he had is somebody who was previously incarcerated came to his office just to thank him. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of programs are so important. And the models, they... About a month ago, mm -hmm. the U.S. Surgeon General put out his mm -hmm. first report on addiction. What comments would you have for our listening audience on that, the significance of that, mm. and maybe some of the particulars that were shared in there, which make that, perhaps in some people's estimation, a watershed moment? It is definitely an impressive report. Um, I think, from what I see and what I hear, the most important uh, information that's written in there has to do with the disease of addiction. And, and I'll explain that a little bit. But what we're dealing with here is not a moral failing. It is not. This is a medical issue. And as soon as we start to treat it that way, it changes the game. But it's taking a long time for people to believe that's true. Um, I can assure you that every time I do a presentation and say it's 
medical that I get a lot of pushback on that. Still? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, but the more that we can clearly explain it as that in a simple way, the more that people will begin to accept it. So for, to have the Surgeon General produce a report that so clearly defines that with clear scientific evidence, that to me is the most important thing you could say. I think we all know we need more treatment. We need more detox. We need more naloxone out there. There's much, a lot that we need. We need more community engagement. But to really change it, people have to think of it differently, that it's not a moral failing. And then once you start to think of it as a medical issue, you're going to have more acceptance of medication-assisted treatment. You're going to have more acceptance of recovery centers. It, it changes. You're going to have more involvement by the health community. And that's what needs really is a piece we need. Because we talk about all that law enforcement's done, all that faith's done, all that these groups have done. But what, we, what has to happen is we need appropriate treatment for a medical condition. And, and, and I'll give you a real specific why that's so important. We've had a lot of debate about naloxone. It's coming around, but we still have it. We still get pushback about should we be giving it out to people because it here, here's a typical one. It enables them to use. I hear that all the time. If you had an opportunity to give somebody a drug that if they were having a heart attack would save their life, would you not administer it? Naloxone is a medication that is used to reverse an overdose. So you have a medication that can save their life. Why does anyone say, should I use it? I, I, it, it, is, it is kind of doesn't make sense to me. But if you view it as it's a choice, these people are, you know, awful human beings, then you may not give it. If you view it as this is a medical issue, not only will you give it, but you'll be sure to call 911. Because when we're looking at drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil, people need to remember that naloxone is short-acting. Many of these are not. So you could administer it, and they can re-overdose. That's really important. You have to call 911. Um, and people will say, should we call 911? It goes back to the same thing. Is it a medical emergency? Yes. Then why are you asking, should I call 911? What medical emergency do you not call 911 for? So there are so many reasons why that alone is tremendously significant in his report. Jennifer, what else would you like to share with our listeners about how they can make a difference in fighting the opioid epidemic? We actually discuss this quite a bit because sometimes it seems too big to people. It's too big. I can't make overwhelming. You know, um, so it's important to always have the big goals, like, you know, let's get a treatment center started. But it's really important to remember that every day 
you can make a difference. And, and, and so I'm going to give a couple of story examples. And I always do a lot of stories because people remember them. Um, because people do want to help, but they don't know what to do. So here's, here's two really good examples. Or maybe no, I'll just do the one. It's my favorite. When we were planning the um, town hall in the community that was very, very bad, at that town hall, we were going to have speakers who were not kind of the senior director type. We were going to have street folks in the midst of it. It's a little, really different kind of a conversation. Mm-hmm. So real world kind of stuff. Yes. Here's what's really happening Here's on what's the streets. Really going kind on of the stuff. streets, right? Yeah. So two of the people that were going to speak were uh, Colum- Columbus uh, PD community liaison officers. Uh, so they came to visit me before uh, the event, and one of them said, "I'd like to tell stories." I said, "I love stories." So what do you want to talk about? He said, well, did you see that picture of that couple overdosing with the child in the back seat? I said, yes, I did. He said, what did you think of it? I said, well, unfortunately for me, I see that sort of something every day. So I wasn't shocked by it. I don't like seeing it, but I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. It is, it is a common occurrence. What shocked me was that everyone in the world saw it. It you know, got so much press. And he said, yeah, it's kind of like that too. In fact, I had one that same day that came out. Like, okay, so tell me that story. He said, so I'm, I'm working and I'm out of my car. I'm, I'm picking up needles in an alley. And I see a car with two adults passed out. It's in a school zone. They're at a crosswalk. Now, I don't know if they have, she has her foot on the brake or on the pedal. So I put my squad car in front of her car, and I go over, and EMS is going to come, and they're going to, you know, revive them. And in the meantime, their four-year-old had left the car and was walking down the street in bare feet. So I said, so what do you do? He said, well, I went and got her. I go, and then what? And then I brought her to my squad car, and I... Gave her stuffed animal from the back of my car. I go, oh. And then what? Because then I held her. She cried. He got sad. I said, so, um, do you all carry stuffed animals in your squad cars? He said, yeah. I said, why? He said, because there's so many children affected. Oh. I said, do you have a budget for those? No. How'd you get them? He said, I went to a event and there was a hospital there that was giving away stuffed animals and I took some. I said, okay. Suppose at the town hall, I say to the audience, I know you want to help and I know you think it's hard and you don't know what to do. And I would do this after he told the story. Could you collect stuffed animals? and bring them to the places that help children. Because of that picture, one thing we can all agree on, because there was a lot of debate, is that we want to help that child. And so um, instead, I actually called a business, because we need business engagement, told them the story, and he said, we will fill 
van. He's a car dealer with stuffed animals. And we'll deliver them to the town hall and we will march them in. Now, when they did that, it was a remarkable moment because in that audience, there was many active addicts, many people in despair. And it gave them for just a moment a good feeling. And for that police officer who experiences that trauma, to have a community do that for him, it meant a great deal to him. And so those sorts of things we have to do because it makes us feel good, it makes the people around us feel good, and they're easy. They're easy and they make a difference. And there's lots of things like that. Writing cards to people whose children are in recovery, saying, okay, is there anything we can do? Simple things. So much of this is often about compassion. I mean, and, it really is. And community coming and community. together. So there, there's a lot of that we can do. And it does make a difference. You know, some people, you know, I say, I, I have to try to deliver hope as part of what I do. And I think some people think, well, that's kind of hokey. It's like, no, it's really important. Yeah. It's really important. Um, because this is really hard. And people are are at their lowest they've ever been. And, and so they, but if you lose hope, well, that's tough. Then all is lost. So, right. So the small things as individuals matter greatly. And when, when that picture got posted on Facebook, I can tell you that of the officer with all the stuffed animals, I can't, it was so wonderful to see the responses and then people were sharing it. Mm. And so other people did take up drives and then they did deliver those animals to police officers. What a great story that is. From something simple. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. So mm -hmm. all, it's not just the QRTs, which are, it, it's all of it. Yeah. All the pieces matter. Yeah. Any last comments for our listeners? No, I think I've talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having Outstanding. me. Outstanding. I appreciate yeah. it. We've been joined today by Jennifer Biddinger. She's the Director of Drug Abuse Outreach Initiatives for Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover Two Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover Two team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.